Yo, welcome back to Brojo Online. This will be the last podcast before my next book is released. So my next book, The Naked Truth, comes out next week. And uh, we're going to celebrate that today with a few of my favorite chapters from the book on confrontations. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as you listen to me try to convince you that confrontations are a good thing. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. The Importance of Confrontations I am always amazed by people who know something is wrong but still insist on ignoring it, as if that will somehow make it go away. They spare themselves the confrontation, but end up boiling in resentment anyway. That's a quote from David Levithan. Why focus on confrontations? Confrontation is an epic topic for me, and one that sits at the heart of why most people frequently engage in dishonesty. For most of my life, I suffered from crippling fear and anxiety around confrontations, more specifically, conflict. We'll explore the crucial difference between confrontation and conflict shortly. Many of the people that I have worked with and talked to about confrontations also struggle with this. Unless you're a naturally aggressive or bold person, confrontation is probably the most difficult type of honesty for you. And even if you are naturally confrontational, there's still a good chance that you do it in an unhelpful way that ruins connections or includes some form of dishonesty. In the next few chapters, we will spend a fair amount of time discussing confrontations, simply because this is where the most gains can be made in terms of becoming a more confident and honest person, a person of integrity. Essentially, confrontations are difficult moments of honesty, so if you can confront effectively and without much hesitation, then you can probably be honest about anything. Most people I see are either too scared to confront, or they do it ineffectively. They back down and get walked all over, or they fight back with aggressive and defensive tantrums that only make their lives worse in the long run. We're going to discuss how to have brave, calm, and effective confrontations that build relationships rather than destroy them, while increasing your self-confidence at the same time. What is a confrontation? A confrontation is any form of assertively honest expression that is likely to provoke an uncomfortable emotional reaction inside of you and or anyone else. To confront simply means to express your preferences, your likes and dislikes, things you want and abhor, to an audience that may feel differently and resist you. It's showing a truthful side of yourself that you believe people are unlikely to agree with or approve of, and may even react to with ferocious negativity. Confrontations include boundary setting, explaining to others what you like and dislike about them personally, in such a way that challenges their behavior and possibly demands that they change. For example, asking someone to refund your money for poor service. Boundary setting can take many forms, often including the expression of emotions that clearly demonstrate your preferences, such as disgust, anger, disappointment, or even attraction. Confrontations can include asserting your thoughts and beliefs to an audience that may disagree, particularly an audience that may challenge you, discredit you, disown you, or get offended. 
For example, telling a room of religious people that you don't believe in God. Confrontations can also be behavioural and non-verbal, doing something that is likely to provoke a disapproving reaction from others. For example, quitting the university course your parents paid for and expect you to finish, or going against social norms. What is a conflict? A confrontation should not be confused with a conflict, which is more about the emotional reactions people have when being confronted, or the emotions you feel about initiating a confrontation. A conflict is when one or more people have an emotional loss of control during a confrontation. Put it this way, a calm and reasonable confrontation is never a conflict. If you can manage your emotions, or at least your internal response to the rise of emotions, then there won't be any conflict inside you during a confrontation. You will simply be there to witness the other person's emotional reaction. Sure, the reason for the confrontation itself might be a conflict. For example, standing up to a bully because you're outraged by their behavior. But the conflict is essentially a separate event from the confrontation. Speaking your mind, the confrontation, can be separated from the resulting emotional reaction, the conflict. They should each be viewed and managed as separate components of an interaction. We'll carefully separate confrontation from conflict because conflating these two concepts results in one of the greatest struggles for people who are trying to be more honest. In simple terms, a conflict is an emotional reaction to a perceived confrontation, but this actually has very little to do with the confrontation itself, although it will appear to be related. This reaction can occur inside whomever is involved, including yourself, and usually takes the forms of emotions that are either aggressive or defensive, such as, but not limited to, anger, outrage, guilt, frustration, annoyance, panic, fear, shame, offense, disgust, vengeance, jealousy, and confusion. You can have these feelings even when a confrontation is reasonable, or even when a confrontation is not happening at all. We use the word conflict to describe these more painful, resistant, or negative emotional reactions. Other feelings like curiosity, understanding, love, interest, happiness, and calmness have no element of conflict in them. If these arise during a confrontation, then we generally label such confrontation as just a sharing of information, which is free from conflict. A calm debate between two people who want to help each other and come to a mutually beneficial agreement. It's only when the unpleasant emotions arise that we can call it a conflict. You cannot prevent the other person from having a conflict in reaction to your confrontation. No matter how calm, reasonable or careful you are, there are some people who will react with conflict regardless. Some people are upset simply because they are being confronted. I once made a friend cry just by asking her to sit down for a chat, and I hadn't even started to explain why I wanted to confront her. She was already in conflict from the moment I opened my mouth. Of course, in this book we will try to give you the best possible chance to avoid conflict without sacrificing honesty, but it's just not possible to control the insecurities and reactions of others. We're much more interested in managing your own inner conflict, so that you are able to have confrontations effectively. A conflict can also describe what happens inside of you, even if you are the one to initiate the confrontation. 
If you're nervous, angry, worried, ashamed, or upset before or during the confrontation, then you're simultaneously in conflict and confrontation. If you react to the other person's response with agitated emotions, for example, you get panicky about them disagreeing with you, then you are in a sense infected with their conflict. This might happen a lot, and that's okay so long as you understand that this is a separate event from the confrontation. The emotions that accompany the confrontation are not caused by you expressing yourself honestly, they are caused by the beliefs that people involved have about what's being said. Simply put, confrontations don't cause conflict, people's limiting beliefs do. By these definitions, I don't think anyone is actually afraid of confrontation. It's the potential for conflict that scares us. You'll notice there are certain people that you have no problem confronting, because for whatever reason, you're not afraid of their emotional reactions. And this is important to recognize because it's in becoming adept at confrontations that you deal with your fear of conflict. The more you can manage the way you set boundaries to release your shame around expressing preferences, the less a conflict will bother or threaten you. Especially once you learn to let go of controlling the other person's conflict, a skill we will describe in detail soon. Then you become free to confront any person without worrying so much about how everyone feels. It's through mastering confrontations, and thereby increasing your self-respect, that you can finally learn to stop caring about what other people think of you. The Guy with the Dogs Recently, while rushing around in the week before we got married, my fiancé and I found out that one of the wedding guests was secretly trying to get his two big dogs allowed into the wedding venue. This guy has a reputation for being underhanded and a bit sneaky, something I'd clashed with him about in the past, and he probably surmised that we'd be against having the dogs at the wedding, so he was going about it in an indirect fashion, to get the dogs approved to be there without us knowing. We only found out because a venue's manager called the best man, asking if this was okay. When I found out, I was immediately upset, in other words, in conflict. My fiancé was already stressed out and we didn't need this extra burden, particularly as this guy is difficult to confront and usually gets his way through manipulation and relentless pressure. No one else wanted to deal with this issue, so I felt angry about the whole situation and bitter that I had to deal with it. This was my conflict. Although I hadn't spoken to him yet, I was already feeling agitated. Realizing this, I took some deep breaths to moderate my state of being and become more calm, and thereby more rational. I wanted to ensure that I would be cool and collected while managing the ongoing conflict I was experiencing. I wanted this confrontation to be honest, courageous and assertive, and yet still compassionate and respectful. So I asked for his number and dialed with only slightly shaking hands. When he answered, I breezed quickly through the pleasantries and cut straight to the chase. I told him in clear terms that there could be no dogs at the wedding, and that he'd need to make alternative arrangements. I then went silent to allow him to respond. He came back expressing surprise about my hardline stance, and disappointment that I had put him in a difficult position last minute, and then he tried to guilt trip me while pleading for leniency, saying that the dogs were quiet, easy to manage, and like my own children. This was his conflict. 
Had I reacted to this with guilt, outraged defensiveness, apology, or any other highly emotional outburst, then I would have been infected by his conflict. To bring the conversation back to it just being a confrontation, allowing him to be conflicted by himself without dragging me in as well, I simply heard him out, waited for him to finish, and then said, I understand, but there's no room for movement on this. Either you come without the dogs, or you don't come. It went back and forth a bit in the same fashion, but no matter how he came at me, I just responded with the original confrontation. I must have sounded like a recorded message looping over and over. I refused to argue against his counterpoints or get distracted from the main message. I didn't justify or explain my position. I didn't try to convince him I was right. I just repeated the boundary until I was done with the conversation. There were no dogs at the wedding. Over the next few chapters, we're going to explore how to maintain resilience and calmness during confrontations by ensuring that you know how to manage your own conflicts while simultaneously resisting any temptation to be sucked into the conflicts that others are experiencing. Confrontation Phobia My biggest fear growing up was the fear of conflict, although I thought of it as a fear of confrontation since I linked the two in my mind. I assumed that all confrontation came with conflict, that I couldn't stand up for myself without getting upset and or upsetting others. I was more afraid of conflict than I was of death. I had an extreme emotional response whenever it appeared that someone was going to disagree with me, or get angry, or be disappointed in me, or challenge me to a fight, or even simply misunderstand me. All it would take was a frown of disapproval or aggressive eye contact and boom, emotional meltdown for me. In the face of a potential showdown, my throat would swell like I'd swallowed a hot lump of meat locking me up so badly that I couldn't dare to speak. It always felt like the attempt to talk would cause me to cry, which I found at the time to be extremely embarrassing. My knees and hands would begin to shake from the adrenaline surging through my veins, my heartbeat would be pounding in my ears, and my stomach would churn with queasiness as all my energy resources were drafted for the upcoming battle I thought was about to happen. What baffles me to this day is that I still don't have a clear understanding as to why I was afraid. I was not raised in an abusive home or embattled environment. If anything, I was probably sheltered a little too much, which may go some way to explaining my mental fragility when it came to emotional conflict. I didn't get in many fights at school, and my parents were mostly fair and reasonable when it came to discipline. They never used violence or shouting or insults, etc. Nonetheless, conflict terrified me and led me to avoid confrontation, as I blamed confrontation for being the cause of painful emotions. One way we tend to view conflict is as the direct manifestation of someone's disapproval of us. For as far back as I can remember, before I started serious self-development, I consistently reacted with fear to the idea of being disliked. Confrontation seemed to be the evidence of dislike a certainty of what I feared coming to life, proof that I was not good enough and unlovable, at least in someone's opinion. Because I believed that a confrontation was the same thing as a conflict, I would assume that if someone ever confronted me, then they also felt badly about me. In other words, they no longer liked me. I couldn't conceive of someone confronting me without changing their overall love for me. 
If a girlfriend simply disagreed with me in even a slightly emotional way, I would assume she was no longer in love with me and that the relationship was over. To avoid conflict, I prevented confrontation. Through behaviours such as people-pleasing, keeping the conversation superficial, being funny, and engaging my overdeveloped mediation skills at the slightest sign of disagreement, I was able to consistently navigate away from potential confrontations and prevented them from occurring. I would even struggle to allow other people to confront or conflict. Strangely, I could throw myself in between two guys brawling violently just to prevent further conflict. I remember once coming home from a night on the town absolutely coated from neck to waist in some other dude's blood after trying to protect him from getting his ass kicked by a stronger lad. It's like I'd rather get physically hurt than experience the emotional discomfort of witnessing others in conflict. Many, many of my coaching clients and Brojo community members have a similar fear of conflict that they need to overcome. For whatever reason, they have been raised to believe that any confrontation is bad and will always result in conflict, which is also bad. Either they try to prevent and avoid confrontation, as I once did, or they react to it with immediate conflict, often escalating even basic boundary-setting conversations into outraged battles that destroy connections and relationships. I have met very few people in my life who know how to manage confrontations in a healthy and productive way without becoming overly conflicted and reactive. People often reference death in public speaking as their top fears or phobias, and it amazes me how infrequently confrontation is brought up. Perhaps I'm biased by my audience, but I anecdotally see that fear of conflict through confrontation causes much greater restriction to honesty than almost any other fear I'm aware of. Maybe death and public speaking are possibly both types of confrontation, death being the darkest truth we have to face, and public speaking being an arena that could provoke mass conflict. That is not to say that no one is able to engage in confrontation, but it's uncommon for someone to manage confrontations well and without conflict. We still have hatred, war, crime, domestic violence, and other forms of harmful conflicts. Not to mention all the passive or covert aggressive backstabbing in the workplace and amongst even the closest of friends. I don't think I'm being too biased in saying that humans have a long way to go in their ability to express anger, frustration, and annoyance in a healthy way. To confront instead of creating conflict, and to handle being confronted. People will hold back and try to avoid taking a stand until anger, bitterness, and frustration flood over the sandbags. This is when you see someone erupt emotionally over things that may appear petty and small. Put it this way, very few people seem capable of calmly and rationally maintaining their boundaries, using anger as an assertive force rather than having it manifest in defensiveness or aggression. Perhaps it's something we should all be working on. Are you implying that confrontation is a good thing? You bet your sweet ass I am. We only believe confrontation is bad or harmful because we blame honesty for the conflicts that both we and others experience. I once saw confrontation as a failure, as evidence of my inability to communicate or create harmony in earlier stages of an interaction. I saw confrontation as the end result of poor communication skills and unhealthy relationships. But I was blind to any alternative, despite frequent competing evidence. 
For example, married couples arguing but still loving each other for years. I'd become irrationally attached to a false belief that inner confidence and good connections were created from pleasurable experiences, therefore conflict must be avoided at all costs. I saw confrontations as being unpleasant, as being the cause of conflict, so I naturally assumed they were also bad for confidence and relationships. For the longest time, it didn't occur to me that there was a direct link between my unwillingness to confront people, my low self-confidence, and my inability to create deeply meaningful connections and relationships. In my limited understanding, I believed that confidence had something to do with always being happy, or at least emotionally unaffected. Therefore, I thought that any conflicting emotions, such as anger or being upset, could not fit into the category of confidence. You may feel that way too. It took me many years to realize how wrong I was. Martin Luther King Jr. Nelson Mandela Malala Yousafzai What do these people have in common? They are leaders who have faced severe disapproval for standing up for what they believed in. Whether you like or agree with them is irrelevant to my point. They have confronted people publicly, in spite of reactions of outrage, anger and upset. They have had their confrontations met with hostility, disapproval and even violence. And yet there can be little doubt that they are also each incredibly self-confident. King's public confrontation of race issues led him to face multiple threats on his life. He risked his well-being by engaging in confrontations in order to live by his values and was willing to pay the ultimate price. Mandela endured decades in prison for standing up against apartheid in South Africa, even though he was given the opportunity to back down and receive a safe haven as a reward. Yousafzai boldly faced up to the local Taliban regime, fucking Taliban, just to fight for women's educational rights, and continued to confront the entire world on women's rights even after being shot in the head for her trouble. Once again, what do they all have in common? They are confident and they are no strangers to confrontation. They not only face it, but provoke it willingly and tolerate conflict on a regular basis as an inevitable reaction for speaking honestly. You don't need high-profile role models like these to see evidence that confrontation is regularly experienced and exercised by confident people. Look around. Really look around. Notice that people who are sure of themselves also stand up for what they believe in and are willing to risk social disapproval in order to express themselves. Notice also how the healthiest relationships have regular boundary setting. You may need to look past the facade that many put on in public. The evidence that confidence and confrontation are bound together in a relationship has been right in front of you your entire life. However, it's been easy to confuse healthy, confident confrontation with unhealthy, irrational conflict. Often we lump these in together, yet they are worlds apart. So in the next few chapters, we'll have a look at the benefits of confrontation and further define the difference between confrontation and conflict. We'll explore in depth how confrontation will build your confidence and connections with others. And then finally, with your mind ready to overcome your fears, we'll look at practical guidance on how to have an effective, healthy and confidence-building confrontation. 
Keeping it simple summary. A confrontation is stating your preferences in an assertively honest manner. A conflict is the emotional reaction that occurs before, during, or after a confrontation, but is a separate event. In other words, a confrontation can occur without conflict. Many of us are terrified of confrontation, but this is only because we equate it with conflict. We assume that confident mindsets and healthy relationships do not include confrontation and conflicting emotions, yet many confidence role models clearly disprove this. Open your mind to the possibility that confrontation will actually benefit your life and confidence once you learn more about it and how to do it in a healthy way. Key Actions Write a list of recent events where you either avoided confrontation or blew up and had an unhelpful conflict. Write a list of situations that regularly occur in your life where you wish you could be better at confrontations. Next to each of these, list the benefits you would receive in your life if you were better at confrontation. What's up people? Look, I'll pause just here for a few seconds to promote my next book, The Naked Truth, using shameless honesty to enhance your confidence, connections, and integrity. Now this book comes out the 1st of December 2020, but if you're listening to this before then, you can pre-order it to get some pretty sweet bonuses, including a question and answer session with me personally about the difficulties being honest. I'm going to quickly read to you from the back cover, because that pretty accurately sums up the book, and then we'll get back to today's podcast episode. It starts with a quote from Donald Robertson, who wrote the foreword for this book, He's the Stoic scholar and the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. He says, In this book, Dan Munro does something that many books on authenticity actually fail to do. He speaks from the heart in his own voice and provides the reader with a living example of the sort of integrity he's advocating. Here's what the back cover says. Most of us are living a lie. We like to think of ourselves as good people. And because of this, we come to the conclusion that we must also be honest people, because a good person isn't dishonest, right? And yet, in order to believe this story, we must overlook a few things. Like how we are falsely agreeable with people we're attracted to or intimidated by. Like how we pretend to feel positive emotions so that people don't feel burdened by our darkness. Like how we hold back on speaking our minds to avoid confrontations. Like how we don't call out our family on their bad behavior. And let's face it, how often we straight up lie. For some of us, this has become more than just a habit or a reaction to difficult social situations. It's become a lifestyle. We create a persona, a performance, that was originally designed to prevent rejection, embarrassment, and conflict, but has since become an ongoing act that we automatically play out without even thinking about it. What's wrong with that? Everything. After more than 10 years spent coaching people on how to become more honest and confident by living with integrity, I've come to realize that dishonesty is at the heart of nearly all our suffering. It's the reason you lie awake with anxiety. It's the reason there's so much conflict in your relationships. It's the reason your friendships are superficial, your job is unsatisfying, and your self-worth is declining. Why? Because dishonesty is the cause of shame. In this book, you will be challenged on everything you believe about yourself and how honest you really are. 
You will be shown the connection between your dishonesty and your suffering. But most importantly, you will be shown how to safely increase your honesty until you can become bold, assertive, responsible, and yet still kind, without pretending to be something you're not. So that gives you a little taste of what to expect in the book. There's a link below wherever this episode is posted if you want to pre-order or order the book after the 1st of December, or you can email me dan at brojo.org for more information. Now let's get back to today's podcast. The Benefits of Confrontation Any psychologist will tell you that healing comes from honest confrontation with our injury or with our past. Whatever that thing is that has hurt us or traumatized us, until we face it head on, we will have issues moving forward in a healthy way. That's a quote from Nate Parker. Why I love confrontation and why you should too. There are five main reasons why I believe confrontations are not only helpful but necessary. Over the next two chapters we will explore these in detail. These chapters are here to help you open your mind to being curious and possibly even enthusiastic about the idea of bringing more confrontation into your life. Here are the five things that confrontations have the potential to do. 1. Deepen your relationships and connections with others. I know, sounds ridiculous to some of you, right? How can confronting someone possibly improve a relationship? We'll answer that in a minute. 2. Allow you to build your self-worth through increased courage, awareness and self-respect, as well as encouraging others to respect you more. 3. Help you give to the world all of who you are. By sharing controversial or polarizing ideas and beliefs, you can help others feel connected or wiser. Number 4. Prevent most conflicts from occurring. Really. And we'll explore how conflicts themselves must be confronted. And number 5. Provide a powerful defense against manipulation. People can only get you, that is successfully manipulate you, if you're unwilling to provoke and or experience certain uncomfortable emotional states. Once you can willingly endure these emotions, in other words, face up to conflicts, no one will be able to get inside your head and fuck with you. In this chapter, we'll focus on the first three. Before we do, let's further explore boundary setting, where values meet confrontation, because this is the most important type of confrontation a person needs to have. Setting Boundaries When confrontation is used to set someone straight on what your values are and how they must behave in order to respect those values, we will call this setting boundaries. Essentially, this is exactly what it sounds like, a boundary line that someone is not allowed to cross. You educate someone on your definition of bad behavior, and ideally what the alternative good behavior could be instead, so that they can see a clear boundary line between good and bad. Bad behavior is anything someone does that breaches your values, morals, or ethics, particularly when this involves you directly. There is an art to knowing the difference between boundary setting and controlling manipulation. We'll try not to interfere with how others choose to live. Boundary setting is reserved for times when their choices on how they live violate our principles in some way that affects us negatively, and so cannot be tolerated. 
Setting boundaries is really nothing more than honestly expressing disagreement with someone's behavior, and in some cases with their stated beliefs and intentions. It is not an attempt to change them by force, but instead an invitation for them to consider the option of treating you or others with more respect. If they choose to reject this invitation, there may be consequences, for example, the end of a friendship, but these consequences are not a punishment tool used to coerce or otherwise manipulate them. Setting a boundary is like drawing a line in the sand. It's up to them whether they cross that line, and they will clearly know what happens if they do. Think of it like speeding laws. The police don't force you to drive under a certain speed. They simply make you aware of how they'll react if they catch you doing it, and the rest is up to you. Simply put, setting a boundary is where you honestly confront someone and say, I'd prefer if you didn't do that, and instead I would like you to do this. Then you simply allow them to choose an option, and you react accordingly. If they respect your boundary, they are entitled to privileges like your time, attention, love, friendship, energy, and support. If they choose not to, you will redirect those privileges elsewhere and they will miss out. These privileges are not a bargaining chip. This is simply a cause and effect sequence. Valued behavior leads to privileges, while disrespectful behavior does not. People who respect me get my best treatment, but I don't mistreat people who disrespect me. I simply don't give them more than a basic courtesy. Confrontations improve relationships. In my early years, as I've already mentioned, I avoided confrontations like the plague. I figured that if a relationship was free of arguments, disagreement, and anger, it must be a good relationship. I don't know if I've ever been more wrong about something in my life. In my first long-term relationship, there were almost no confrontations at all. As a people-pleasing nice guy, I simply submitted to almost any request my girlfriend put forward, and I would quickly back down if a disagreement got even close to becoming emotional. Whatever she wanted, I provided. Whatever she believed, I agreed. The entire time I told myself that I simply didn't care that much, that I was easygoing, or that I was a great guy for being so understanding. What a load of bullshit. The pure and simple truth was that I was afraid of being dumped, and, to a lesser degree, afraid of being faced with her emotions and not knowing how to handle them, or my own for that matter. On one occasion, I did actually argue with her. I was so convinced that the relationship would end because of it, that I was genuinely shocked when she didn't dump me. It simply never occurred to me that it was possible for a relationship to survive an emotionally charged argument. This was how bad my fear of conflict was. Ironically, when she later broke up with me, one of the main reasons was that I was too easygoing, which, it turned out, was both boring and frustrating for her. What I've realized is that when you do not confront someone who crosses your boundaries, people will struggle to trust you. It's just impossible to trust someone who isn't bothered by anything, or is bothered but won't protect themselves in any way. It's too unreal. We all know, as humans, that everyone must be bothered by something. So when you are faced with someone who seems unfazed and totally agreeable all the time, your suspicion will almost always be provoked, unless you're totally naive. It feels manipulative, probably because that's exactly what it is. And when someone is bothered but fails to stand up for themselves, we can't trust that they would have our back in a fight either. 
When you express to people that you're generally okay with everything, they will start to feel uncomfortable in your presence. Deep down, they sense that you must be lying, or they lose their own self-worth because your perfection makes them feel inferior. They'll start to worry that you're secretly building up resentment, or that you're just a robot who doesn't feel anything. It's very difficult to connect with someone who doesn't care about anything, and it's impossible to feel completely safe with someone who can't tell you when they're upset. When you set reasonable boundaries and show that certain things consistently bother you, it's easier to believe that you're genuinely not bothered. It's easier to believe you when you're genuinely not bothered. It gives people a sense of your preferences that they can trust. The more I know about your likes and dislikes, the more I know you as a person. As I get to know you, if you're showing me consistent boundaries, then I will start to be better able to predict what's cool for you and what isn't. This predictability is the essence of trust. This allows me to respect you and relax in your presence. With my wife Lucy, I've learned how to draw the lines. I've shown her what I disagree with, find unenjoyable, dislike about her behavior, and don't believe in. She does the same with me. The beautiful thing about this is that we don't need to agree. To some extent, she must obey some of my boundaries. For example, if she was to hurt my family members, that would be a deal breaker for me. She never has. But most of the time, she isn't obliged to do anything when I confront her. I'm just expressing who I am. For example, she remains firmly Catholic while I'm an atheist. We can both express differences here without the other needing to change in any way. But if I were to pretend to believe in God, she would start to feel that something was off and would lose both trust and respect for me. She expressed to me that she feels uneasy if I'm too agreeable. Early on in our relationship, she once said in an exasperated way, You seem to like everything. This was a warning sign. She was starting to feel unsafe and suspicious. I had heard this before. It was a pattern of dishonesty I'd brought to many, if not all, of my previous relationships. When I tell her firmly that I don't like something, or that I'm feeling angry, she knows where I stand and knows I can stand up for myself, and that I'm not being fake. As a wise man once told me about woman, if she knows that you can stand up to her, she'll believe that you can stand up for her. If you can let go of the need to win your arguments, we'll discuss this in one of the following chapters, you'll see that confrontations are simply a way of letting the people in your life know where you stand on certain issues. It reassures them that you're honest and will not tolerate harmful things. Therefore, you're trustworthy, safe, and courageous. If you don't do this, you have no chance of creating a deep and real connection. And if you genuinely believe that nothing about a person ever bothers you, you're lying to yourself and to them. Of course, sometimes friends, family members, and partners have frequent arguments that eventually destroy their relationships. But these are not really confrontations as I've defined them. They're conflicts. Overreacting, taking things personally, vengeance, getting defensive, being nasty and manipulative, trying to win. These are all characteristics of conflicts and not of healthy confrontations. Yet relationship disasters often get blamed on confrontations when the real culprits are the conflict reactions. Don't blame confrontations for your poorly managed conflicts. Confrontations increase self-worth. If you do not confront people who cross your boundaries, you are disrespecting yourself. 
For anyone who has struggled with confrontations and boundary setting, you must surely be seeing evidence by now that this negatively affects your self-worth. How much you value yourself is not only measured by how respectful your behaviour is towards yourself, it is in fact determined by it. The more you allow people to mistreat you or breach your values in other ways, through not being honest about your feelings, the less valuable you'll believe you are. Each avoidance of confrontation is like a sacrifice, stabbing your confidence with a knife. Eventually it bleeds to death from a thousand small cuts. How many nights have you laid awake, fuming over what you should have said, and beating yourself up for being a pussy who doesn't stand up for yourself? How many times have you felt the unpleasant wash of shame run through your body as yet another douchebag is allowed to dominate you, abuse you, and cause you to miss out on a better life? How many times have you hesitated to speak your mind and then beaten yourself up for missing yet another opportunity? How many times have you failed to protect someone you care about just because you didn't want to feel a bit uncomfortable? When you hold back from stating your boundaries, you send yourself a very clear message. What I believe in is not worth discussing and what I want is not worth asking for. Think about it in this way. If you give someone else the freedom to state their views and express their feelings, that's an act of respect, right? So what does it mean when you refuse to give yourself this opportunity and freedom? How would a child feel if you always told them to shut up and keep their thoughts to themselves? This is what you do to yourself when you back down. There is no one on this planet who can harm your self-worth more than you can. There are many ways we all do this, but my experience teaches me that none are as prevalent and harmful as not standing up for yourself. Think about how unworthy you feel when your partner or friend or boss doesn't stand up for you when they should. You're doing the same thing to yourself every time you pick your battles and choose not to speak your mind. You invalidate yourself. I remember a clear incident where I boldly stood up for what I believed in. This may have even been the first proper boundary I ever initiated on my own. I had been going through my first real authenticity development phase at the time and was testing out new ideas. One of those ideas was to live courageously with integrity even if it meant that other people wouldn't like me. One day at work, I went into the lunchroom and was presented with the perfect opportunity. There was a table of about six of my colleagues eating lunch together and they were all laughing. I eavesdropped as I started microwaving my rice and chicken and realized that they were laughing at someone else's expense. A new staff member had recently been given a tour of the building and everyone present at the lunch table was just going to town on her, taking the piss out of her voice, the way she looked and her personality. It was cruel. I felt super uncomfortable listening to it. Now the previous me would have probably just walked out or even joined in with the gossipy banter so that I could feel like I belong. At best, maybe I would have tried to change the topic discreetly. But this time, I asked myself, what would a confident guy do? The answer scared the shit out of me. I had to confront a whole group of my peers. Not only that, this was a group of people who were clearly comfortable talking shit about someone behind their back, so there was a very high possibility that I would be the next subject of their derision if I spoke out. It's moments like these that define integrity and define who we're going to be. I gathered my courage, accepted the nervous, panicky heat raging through my body, 
and made my peace with the inevitable worldwide abandonment my mind told me I was about to experience. Blushing profusely, I took a deep breath and spoke up. Hey guys, I'm pretty sure that you wouldn't be saying this stuff if that person was here in this room, so it's probably not cool to be saying it behind her back, right? Everyone went dead silent. I waited anxiously to get fired, tarred and feathered, and possibly burnt at the stake. But then suddenly, an incredible and unexpected phenomenon occurred. As they stared at me blankly, I noticed that their faces slowly turned an ever deeper shade of red. They were blushing worse than me, and I realised that they were embarrassed. At first I thought they were simply embarrassed for me because I had spoken against the group, but then as one by one they started mumbling apologies and avoiding each other's eyes, I realised they were ashamed of themselves. As I walked out of the room I felt a massive surge of self-worth like nothing I had ever experienced before. I had stepped off the edge of the abandonment cliff, taking a massive risk simply in order to express myself honestly. Not only did it feel thrilling, but I also helped the whole group realise that they were not living by their own values. Few people are proud of themselves for gossiping and backstabbing. They simply do it to hide their own insecurities and to fit in with the group. I had called it out and set them straight. Ultimately, their reaction was irrelevant. Maybe they started talking shit about me as soon as I left the room. Sometimes I say things that I know are true and the audience still hates me. There have been plenty of times where I posted something online or said something I believed during a speech and received an immediate negative backlash. But when I have the presence of mind to see past my neediness for approval and acceptance, I usually feel pretty damn good about myself the next day. Sometimes I'm wrong and the response I get teaches me something. Yet this still helps me improve my self-worth since it increases my wisdom and adaptability. Confidence can only be gained from standing up for your beliefs. You either get stronger or wiser. Disrespecting yourself brings you nothing. Confrontation is a form of giving. It might seem strange that I would say that being confrontational is an act of giving, particularly if you believe that assertiveness causes conflict and therefore hurts people. So before we go any further, allow me to share my definition of assertiveness. It's the use of power to express yourself fully. It's a controlled expression of the emotional state of anger to stand up for yourself and others in the face of resistance and risks to your integrity. It's neither good nor bad, it's just energy in motion. Assertiveness is one of those concepts that can be inspirational for others. Meek people are often both intimidated and inspired by assertiveness, so standing up for yourself can serve as a motivational demonstration for others to be moved by. But for now, when it comes to explaining how assertive confrontations give value to people, I want to focus on a specific form of assertiveness, our old friend, setting boundaries. When Lucy and I first talked about becoming an exclusive couple, we had a frank conversation about what this would mean. For Lucy, it primarily meant that I would not engage sexually with any other woman or date other women in a romantic way. There were also some other non-negotiables, like I couldn't use drugs excessively or abuse her or manipulate her. Just as importantly, she also identified which of my less than desirable behaviours were not deal-breakers, annoying things I did that she would learn to accept. 
If I chose to accept these terms of agreement, she will commit to me with loyalty, love and respect. It was make or break. So how was this an act of giving? To answer that question, let's explore what it's like to be in a relationship or partnership with someone where you don't know what the boundaries are. This is the kind of relationship where all expectations are silently projected onto the other person. The old, they should just know what to do rule. Have you ever been in one of these connections? It's a circus of mind reading and hope being crushed by bitterness and disappointment. You end up constantly having communication breakdowns because everything is subtle, implicit and secretly expected rather than directly stated. Both of you experience a build-up of anxiety as you wait to learn the hard way what is unacceptable. It's only a matter of time before either a massive conflict breaks out or you slowly end up drifting apart on a bitter sea of resentment and confusion. Many of my coaching clients will describe a relationship like this by saying, I just can't win. I know what they mean. I've been in relationships, work partnerships and friendships where it seems like the rules change daily and without warning. One day, buying them flowers is the sweetest thing in the world to do. The next day, it's seen as condescending and false. For weeks, it's okay to leave your clothes on the floor, then suddenly it's the biggest issue on earth. You end up walking on eggshells, trying to guess all the rules and worrying about where the next breach will occur. When you fail to assert boundaries, you leave the other person in the dark. They don't know how to safely interact with you, which often will trigger them into people-pleasing or avoidant behaviours. The more aggressive people will slip into an automatic domination mode and just walk all over you. Either way, odds are that they will not be encouraged to live by their own values, so everyone involved in the situation eventually loses. When you fail to set boundaries, the most likely outcome is that you will bring out the worst in others, like manipulation, indirect and dishonest communication, and needy self-doubt. I noticed this in the workplace. When I was promoted to senior probation officer, I understood my role as being a helper, which I translated into people-pleasing behavior. No matter how busy I was, I would never say no to someone's request for assistance, and because I was almost always given praise and gratitude, I thought it was the right way to go about doing things. Unfortunately, I was setting a precedent. Eventually, people started to get complacent and would interrupt me multiple times per hour with superficial requests that they could easily have resolved by themselves. My lack of boundary setting enabled them, encouraging them to become needy, dependent, and disrespectful. When I finally did start saying no, their gratitude was quickly replaced by sulky resentment. It can be terrifying to honestly and accurately set boundaries, particularly because most people think that to do so is the opposite of giving. We often believe that we are being a burden to others when we ask for what we want and demand a stop to what we don't want. We worry that we've become inconvenient and selfish, when in reality others will be relieved when the boundaries are clarified. This is something you must see to believe, and it may take some practice before you can do it with powerful honesty and emotional stability, but you already know it from being on the receiving end. Isn't it just so much better when you don't have to guess what someone wants? Of course, I understand why you feel hesitant to set firm boundaries, and why you might see assertiveness as rude, selfish, or harmful. I felt that same resistance for most of my life. We're afraid, aren't we? We don't see confrontation as giving through boundary setting, 
We see it as provoking rage, hatred, rejection, violence, or other painful repercussions through trying to challenge someone. What helped me get past this barrier was understanding that I don't have to control their reaction. I will repeat this point many times throughout this book to emphasize the burden you unwittingly carry, preventing you from practicing shameless honesty. The reason you might currently feel that confrontational boundary setting is bad is because you see it as a means of manipulating someone else's behavior. It feels like taking something from them rather than giving. But setting boundaries does not require their participation, agreement, or even consent. They don't have to give back. You're giving them the opportunity and guidance to respect you and understand how to best interact with you. They don't have to respond positively. You can relieve yourself of that burden. Let them decide for themselves. If you don't stand up for what you believe in, you are living dishonestly. You might believe that living dishonestly is a form of giving. You may think that keeping your disagreements to yourself saves other people from uncomfortable emotions. I hope that you can question this belief. I challenge you to provide evidence that dishonesty around boundaries truly serves someone in the long term. If nothing else, at least be honest with yourself about why you don't do it. You're scared of not being able to handle their reaction. Let's say you have a partner who crosses a boundary by asking you to cancel plans you've made with your friends because she's decided at the last minute that she wants a quiet night in with you. You might think that it would be a selfish act to say no because it would make her feel unwanted and angry toward you and might lead to creating a reputation of you being a cold-hearted boyfriend. This is the kind of script or story that many people attach to assertiveness. So you postpone your plans with your friends for the next week. Only when the next week arrives, the same last minute request happens again, and again you comply. Now a pattern is forming. By complying with their unreasonable requests, and not prioritizing your needs twice in a row, you have set a precedent and designated the foundation of roles within this relationship. You are now the one who moves aside for her. She is now the one entitled to make last-minute unreasonable demands. Are you still so sure that this will serve you both in the longer term? Are you even aware of how this affects your regularly disappointed friends? Do you really think this arrangement is going to end well for you? Maybe you know it won't, but you think to yourself, at least I'm making her happy, and you're able to convince yourself that you are being giving. Well, let's face some truths and investigate that a little deeper. What lesson is your partner learning from this experience? Firstly, she is being encouraged to boss you around and see you as having a lower status than herself. Secondly, she hasn't learned to accept that in real life things will not always go her way. You're spoiling her. And thirdly, this is likely a long-term pattern of behavior in her relationships, so you're enabling this unhealthy demanding behavior to continue. She's being encouraged to be selfish and disrespectful. You're rewarding her for it. Do you still think it's no big deal? Do you still think you're generously giving? Imagine that you eventually break up with her, which is almost inevitable given the build-up of resentment on both sides. She will resent and distrust you for being weak, even though she asked you to, because you failed to show integrity. Your partner is now screwed for the long-term future. What if her next partner isn't such a pushover? Your partner thinks she is doing everything right because it worked with you, 
and now she's losing love and opportunities because you never had the guts to call out her shitty behavior. And of course, you're off seeking another insecure control freak to serve your established pattern. All of this is basically a composite true story. I've seen it occur over and over again, and I've even created this one myself. I've seen my ex-girlfriends constantly struggle to find love after leaving me, and I wonder how things might have been different had I grown some balls and pointed out their unhealthy behavior and given them the feedback they so sorely needed. We'll never know, because I never spoke up. I withheld that gift from them. And I repeated my nice guy patterns in relationships for many years before I saw the problem making the same mistakes over and over again because none of my partners gave me the brutally honest feedback I so sorely needed. Being unassertive is the opposite of giving because it usually means that you have condoned unhelpful behavior. You've effectively helped them screw up their future. You've also made them dependent on you, which sets them up to be incapable and insecure. You've done nothing for them and nothing for yourself. If, however, you assert yourself at the beginning and endure that small amount of discomfort, they learn respect and they learn how to create a balanced relationship. You respect yourself and create more time to connect with your friends. All the guys I know who gave up their friends for a needy partner are now lonely and full of regret. And if you're currently in this situation, it's not too late. By the end of the next couple of chapters, you'll have everything you need to reset the meter. Because Lucy and I clearly laid out what we would and would not tolerate from each other as partners, we rarely have any conflicts. We know what we each signed up for and cannot get resentful at each other for being ourselves. And we regularly check in to reassess and adjust our boundaries. We had another assertive boundary-setting discussion before we got married, but because we had laid such a solid foundation, there was really nothing to discuss. We are consistently assertive with each other and prepared to engage in uncomfortable conversations whenever a topic arises that might threaten our relationship even a little. And that is one of the main reasons our relationship remains so healthy. The funny thing is, people will probably like you more if you assert yourself. Setting boundaries is undeniable evidence of self-respect, and self-respect is attractive and reassuring. Assertiveness gives people the gift of hope. You give them a chance to aspire to greatness as they look up to you as a role model, one of the few truly assertive people in their lives. They trust that you can stand up for what's right. They feel safe to know that they will get called out on their own bullshit and self-sabotage. They might even be able to learn how to respect themselves from modeling your behavior. Hey, that's how I learned it. All the best things I learned about self-respect were originally modelled off confident people I admired. Keeping it simple summary. Essentially, confrontation is about using honesty to set boundaries, which allows people to trust you and know you deeply. When you don't set boundaries, you set a precedent that will be hard to break and will cause resentment over time. Other people often struggle to live by their own values, and your boundary setting can help encourage them back on track. If nothing else, even if they all hate you, you'll respect yourself for being assertive when it matters. Key actions. Identify one person in your life who would benefit from your boundary setting and contact them today to tell them about it. Choose something small that you can handle, just a bit uncomfortable, not terrifying. 
How confrontation protects you. Be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts his hand on you, send him to the cemetery. That's a quote from Malcolm X. Confrontations prevent conflict. It seems counterintuitive to think that confronting someone is less likely to lead to a conflict than not. You speak your mind, they take it personally and overreact, and boom, you're now fighting it out. Many people assume confrontation is always a catalyst for conflict, because that's either how it always goes for them, or they simply assume that's how it always goes for everyone, and never test this assumption. Turn the tables and think for a minute about why you get upset when someone speaks their mind and confronts you. What is it that bothers you so much about someone challenging you or having a different perspective? Is it because you think that their views will harm people you love or yourself? Is it because you're worried that they'll turn others against you? Is it because you're afraid they'll somehow get inside your head and change who you are? If they're right and you're wrong, will you lose something important that you cannot live without? While it can be any or all of these reasons, what I've observed is that so often, particularly in close relationships, the main issue is simply surprise. The defensive conflict most people have when confronted seems to stem mainly from a kind of emotional shock. Humans can react to the sensation of being surprised in many different ways. When the magician pulls the rabbit out of the hat, we laugh and shake our heads in admiration. When a wise person you look up to presents a groundbreaking new perspective for looking at the world, you feel a pleasurable swell of insight that replaces your confusion. But when your little brother jumps out of the cupboard and scares the crap out of you, rage instantly takes over and you punch him in the stomach. And it's this last example that I believe is most relevant to our struggles with confrontation. A friend recently confided in me about a conflict with her boyfriend. She had gotten drunk with him, something they had never done together before. Due to her tendency to become emotionally vulnerable and aggressive when drinking, she usually avoids alcohol, but this time she felt safe and didn't think any harm would come from it. The next day she awoke, and while she couldn't clearly remember the night before, he seemed to be fine so she assumed she must have behaved herself well. Later, however, he started gradually expressing anger at the way she had conducted herself. He kept asking questions like, Are you usually like this when you drink? And, Do I have to worry about your self-control when you're drinking? This eventually escalated into a conflict where he revealed that she had behaved quite disrespectfully the night before. Then he started saying that he no longer trusted her ability to stay faithful to him. This point was confusing for her, it seemed like a non-secretor, because there was never any behaviour on her part that could be interpreted as evidence of potential cheating. She had always been sexually faithful. What she didn't realise is that she had surprised him with her drunken behaviour. When we are surprised by someone we love, it can go one of two ways. Either we're delighted with this new aspect of someone, or we are shocked and frightened by its implications. In this case, her boyfriend saw a harmful, destructive side of her. She became irrational and unexpectedly enraged during her drinking. And so he made the mental calculation that this meant that all other things about her, 
like her previous sexual loyalty, were also no longer certain. Her unpredictability, combined with his insecurity about being cheated on, created this conclusion for him. Why do I bring up this example? Because when my friend and I worked backward from the conflict with her boyfriend, we found hidden resentment. She had been holding back on truthful confrontations during the weeks preceding the drinking incident. He had behaved in ways that upset her on a number of occasions, yet she said nothing at the time because unbeknownst to her, she was afraid that a confrontation would hurt their relationship. Once she got drunk, her inhibitions were removed and all that pent-up bitterness came blasting out with incoherent rage. So many small crimes had gone unpunished over time that she didn't even know what she was upset about. Her conflict triggered his conflict, and it all ended up in a big, confused, irrational mess. I see this so often in relationships of all kinds. People build up and then explode over tiny provocations and don't understand why. They fail to realise that by the time they detonate, there has already been a massive accumulation of past grievances because disagreements have not been managed in a healthy way through confrontation. Conflicts are therefore often not the result of confrontation, they are in fact the consequence of not confronting when it needs to happen. Yet the confrontation that finally brings conflicts out unfairly gets the blame for causing them. You'll end up quitting your job just because someone stole your favourite stapler, when in reality if you'd just taken a stand on the little things that bothered you earlier, the stapler wouldn't matter to you at all now. You dump your partner for sending a flirty text to a friend, yet this text would be of little consequence had you been more honest about jealousy you felt earlier in the relationship. Your desire to keep the peace and pick your battles through holding back from confrontation is what sets the stage for a huge blowout. You're much better off calling out every grievance, no matter how small and petty, so they don't accumulate into a toxic mental sludge. Until you're certain that you are bold enough to confront your partner every single time and assert your boundaries when they are crossed no matter what, don't pick your battles, fight them all. Bring up everything that bothers you, even when it seems inconsequential, petty or pointless to discuss. Get used to quickly releasing frustration, disappointment and shock by being honest and confrontational whenever these feelings arise. You don't need to win the battles, just respect yourself by speaking up. It will prevent most conflicts from arising, you deal with shit while it's still small and you'll be far less likely to explode later over some minor inconvenience. Bickering over small things is far less damaging to a connection than holding it all in until you explode. Confrontation prevents manipulation. A clever salesman knows that he can make you buy almost anything if he can simply handle more emotional discomfort than you while he pressures you to keep your own discomfort hidden. Manipulation requires only one thing to be effective, secrecy. Specifically, secrecy about how you feel. Confrontation is simple honesty, and despite the belief that many people have about needing to appear strong when being assertive, assertiveness is simply stating a truth. That truth may be that you feel some form of weakness in reaction to the other person's behavior. You don't need to be strong to confront, only honest and assertive. 
And if you're willing to confront someone, no matter how you feel, it will be nearly impossible for them to manipulate you. When I worked for corrections, there was only one guaranteed way I was going to get manipulated, and that was when I backed down from confrontation due to hidden discomfort. If I was secretive about feeling scared, confused, frustrated, or flattered by someone's behavior, I became open to being influenced and easily manipulated away from my values. Let's explore some real-life examples of times where offenders successfully manipulated me. I'll show you how confrontation could prevent this from happening, and also describe some of the different types of manipulation for you to be aware of. Confronting people about their manipulation directly is the quickest way to shut it down. But for you to do this, you first need to understand what manipulation really is. Intimidation One of the clearest examples of being manipulated through intimidation happened while I was working as a probation officer. I was still pretty new, and up to that point had only been assigned to work with easy-to-manage cases, low-level and compliant offenders who did what they were supposed to do and wanted to change. Then one day I got allocated to work with Greg. He was assessed as a high-risk offender and had a thick criminal history file, a lifetime of antisocial behaviour. For the first few weeks, all was well and good, until one day he tested my boundaries by failing to report in to see me as per his legal obligations. He failed to show up the following week too, despite receiving a warning letter. I had no choice. I had to breach him, which meant charging him with a criminal offence and sending him back to court. After his court case, he came in to see me. All the reporter and office rooms were unavailable that day so I chose to meet with him in a secluded hallway instead, because I didn't want to keep him waiting. Big mistake. This was the first time I experienced what it was like to be trapped in a confined space with a big, angry, violent criminal who didn't like me. Greg shouted. He loomed over me. He accused me of favoritism. No direct threats were made. He probably didn't even view his behavior as aggressive by his standards but I was significantly intimidated. He just wouldn't let up. I felt trapped and panicky and didn't know how to end this torment. It never occurred to me to let him know I felt intimidated. Unfortunately, corrections training at the time was antiquated and advised us to hide any emotions. So I did the only thing I could think of. I agreed to withdraw the charge, providing he promised to get back on track. Greg's demeanor transformed instantly. Suddenly, he was my best friend and a loyal puppy dog willing to play the game and be nice. I felt instantly gratified, sure that I'd done the right thing. Months later, after a dozen more breaches and further reoffending by Greg, I realized that I had been amateurishly conned and had let both of us down by failing to confront his intimidation tactics by showing him how I was feeling. By failing to set boundaries and not calling out his intimidating behavior, I had condoned Greg's continued harmful patterns and I had disrespected myself. He went back to prison, the taxpayer had to foot the bill, and I learned a painful lesson. Because I was willing to admit that I felt intimidated, he was able to back me into a corner. Had I simply said something like, your behavior is making me feel threatened right now, I would have essentially disarmed him without needing to forego my own values. 
I would later use this approach very successfully on many occasions. Flattery. In service-based jobs, there's a common insecurity many people share, usually expressed in some form of the I'm not good enough story, called the imposter syndrome, the worry that you're not really good enough for the role that you are playing and that you will eventually be exposed as an imposter who doesn't deserve to be there. When your job is simply to be who you are and get paid for it, in other words, almost any service position, there's a high probability of self-doubt, and self-doubt is fertile soil for being manipulated. It's all too easy to conflate getting something wrong at work with being wrong as a person. Anyone who is worried that their failures on the job reflect their inadequacies as a person can safely assume they have the imposter syndrome. If you're selling televisions, the television is the product, so even if it doesn't perform well, you don't take it personally. Whereas in being a probation officer, manager, chef or entertainer, you are the product. You must provide the value yourself. When you're worried that your value is not good enough, you will desperately seek outside validation of your worth and thereby become easier to influence with praise and approval. After three years or so in corrections, I was so used to the manipulative phrase, you are the best probation officer I've ever had, that it no longer affected me. It was a standard line that the guys probably taught each other when serving prison sentences together. But it took me quite some time to learn this lesson. Every time I had to enter the interview room with an offender, the I'm not good enough radio station played loudly in my head, asking me just who the hell I thought I was telling other people how to live their lives. Probation officers are expected to rehabilitate criminal offenders, an extremely challenging task that I often worried I was incapable of doing. When I was in this state of mind, I was primed to succumb to flattery, since I was desperate for some form of confirmation that I was not an imposter. Sometimes the offenders were being genuine when they said that I was the best they ever had. As is often the case with flattery, occasional truthful compliments make it ten times harder to recognize the manipulative ones. When the more sophisticated offenders started working with me, they immediately clocked a weakness that they could exploit. I was needy for validation. They knew instinctively that if they could make me feel like I was doing a good job, like I was special, I would become lenient and positively biased towards them. And I did, at first. Eventually, after dozens of offenders manipulated me into believing that I was getting through to them when no one else could, and then subsequently were found to be re-offending like crazy, I realized I was being conned with flattery. Keeping my imposter syndrome a secret prevented me from admitting when I didn't know what I was doing. Later on, when I became okay with not being an expert in everything, offenders were unable to pressure me or rush me into lenient decisions that I later regretted. I discovered that remaining sceptical and confronting them by asking them to prove themselves was the most powerful response to compliments. For example, if they thanked me for being supportive, I'd respond with, if you want to thank me, prove that you're on a better path. I learned that, in general, most compliments are some form of flattery, and genuine recognition and feedback is rare. People aren't always trying to manipulate you when they give you compliments, but it's important nonetheless to build your own self-worth measurement system, 
so that your confidence is never dependent on compliments. Invalidation Sometimes known as guilt-tripping, clever manipulators know how to use invalidation alongside flattery, validation, for the most powerful effect. The Lord giveth and he taketh away. Manipulators can become God for someone who is unwilling to confront invalidation. Offenders who would tell me that I was the best probation officer ever would often also be the first to withdraw such praise and question my competence whenever I did something they didn't like, or even entirely at random just to keep me off balance. I would sometimes become dependent on their feedback to establish how good I was as a probation officer or even as a person. Common examples of everyday invalidation include when someone asks to speak to your manager, questions your understanding of something you're supposed to be the expert in, brings up previous mistakes you've made. It's an attempt to undermine your competence and your belief in yourself. You'll be less decisive if you can't trust yourself, and therefore more open to suggestion and coercion. Abusive partners and families specialize in guilt tripping, and it's my belief that this is the most powerful form of manipulation because it sticks the knife into the person's weakest spot. There's nothing more shameful than believing something awful about yourself and then hearing someone else confirm that they see it too. When you think they're simply confirming something that's true, you won't even consider confronting it. A common form of invalidation is the gaslighting technique which is when you subtly influence someone into doubting their own version of reality. In other words, make them think they're crazy. This is often done with small but frequent jabs at you over a long period of time. I had one particular guy always doing this to me. I would reprimand him for coming in late, and he would react with a baffled smile and insist I told him to come in at the time he did. He constantly questioned my memory of events, and would emphasize every small mistake I made, be it a typo on a form or a slightly inaccurate recollection of minor details. It took me a long time to realize that on the days he was due to come in, I'd start to experience anxiety, and the not-good-enough story would blare through my brain. I needed help to see this one. It wasn't until I received formal manipulation training that I saw this for what it was. It wasn't just him, Many of the more sophisticated criminals preferred this style of attack. They argued over details, constantly implied that I had made mistakes, alluded to my weaknesses, and asked to speak to my supervisors whenever they couldn't change my mind. Once I cottoned on to the fact that this was a deliberate ploy, I was able to call it out and confront them. I started to say things like, I now feel unsure of the facts, but whereas before I would give them the benefit of the doubt, now I would either prove them wrong by bringing in an unbiased third party to mediate, or simply ignore their complaint. Most details don't matter to the main point anyway. Ignoring their manipulation became the most important confrontational strategy, because by even acknowledging their claims, I was allowing myself to be distracted. Note, many and more of the techniques in this chapter are used by narcissists, people with narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and those who score highly for psychopathy. However, in my opinion and experience, they prefer invalidation over most other methods and are particularly fond of gaslighting. Narcissists are often compulsive and extremely accomplished liars, 
and enjoy bending reality through a convincing combination of lies and truth until you have no idea what is real anymore. If you've ever been the target of a true narcissist, you'll notice that you often doubt your own sanity or perception, feel like their version of the truth is more accurate than yours, and find that other people cannot see the manipulator for who they truly are. They make you look crazy while everyone else thinks they're a great person. You must trust yourself. If someone keeps causing you to doubt who you are or what is real, assume they are manipulating you deliberately and react accordingly. Distraction Essentially, all manipulation is a form of distraction that takes you away from the truth, but sometimes distraction itself is the tactic. It's like a pickpocket touching your shoulder so you can't feel the wallet sliding out of your jeans. It's about using captivating words, interesting stories, and emotional outbursts to distract you from the original purpose you came into the conversation with. The best manipulators know that this technique by itself is probably the most effective for avoiding a confrontation, because it's the hardest to see taking place. When done well, it's like a magic trick, a mental sleight of hand. You can never be sure that it really happened, so you feel reluctant to confront it. For a number of years, I worked almost exclusively with rehabilitating higher-risk criminals and monitored child sex offenders for a number of years. These were the most manipulative group of people I had ever encountered. Worse than a herd of car salesmen, real estate agents, and multi-level marketing gurus combined. When a man has trained himself to get inside the heads of an entire family to maneuver his way toward molesting their child, and then to convince the child to remain silent, you're dealing with a psychological mastermind. There is no point in trying to out-manipulate them. They're just too good. And their particular specialty is to move about unseen through the use of clever distractions. At first, they were definitely too smart for me. One particular guy, John, presented himself as a lovely grandpa. The kind of guy you trust instinctively just by looking at him. He always brought with him a warm smile, deferred his eyes during the handshake to show respect, and never forgot to inquire into your health and well-being. Just being around him made you feel good about yourself. Good enough that you'd struggle to believe he'd kept his own niece as a sex slave for over 19 years, chained up in a drawer and abused beyond belief on a daily basis. This monster had me totally conned. John's trump card was the language barrier. He was Chinese and his English was poor, or so I believed. Whenever it came time for us to discuss the nitty-gritty of his offending, a gruesome but necessary part of his rehabilitation, his language skills would fail him. This barrier, combined with my own repulsion to discussing such horrible details, and my growing affection for him that he had been discreetly cultivating, made it emotionally impossible for me to continue. And if I stuck to my guns and said, look mate, we're having this conversation, all of a sudden his daughter was in hospital, or his kidneys were failing, or his welfare check was missing, and so on and so forth. There was a constant deflection away from discussing these key details. I later learned to call this out through confrontation. I had to learn because he reoffended on my watch, and his latest victim haunts my dreams to this day. Because I failed to have a conversation with him about his offending, 
we never addressed or managed his risk factors accurately. That said, I've forgiven myself somewhat because I've since learned that he was diagnosed as an almost pure psychopath with a penchant for sadism, therefore immune to any form of treatment. When he was released on bail, I brought in an interpreter. Every time John would start pretending that he did not understand what I was saying, I would ask the interpreter to translate. Also, whenever he brought up a distracting issue, I would say, that's distracting me from the purpose of today's session, so we'll come back to it later. After a few sessions of my relentless persistence in returning to the point, he gave in and started cooperating. You'll know someone who uses distraction frequently, though perhaps not to cause so much harm as John. It's as if they always have a fire that needs to be put out, so other issues you wish to confront them on have to keep being delayed. They somehow make you feel sorry for them, and provide an awkward guilt through the hidden accusation that you are adding more pain to their lives with your harsh honesty. They can change topic mid-sentence, throwing off your train of thought and making you forget what you were going to say. Sometimes they don't mean to do it. Oversharers and people-pleasers have a subconscious compulsion to distract others from painful emotions or conflict of any kind. Regardless of who's doing it or why, call it out by persistently returning to the main point you wish to discuss as many times as you need to. In the end, confrontation protects you from manipulation because there are no secrets left to be leveraged against you. You don't need to become a master of human psychology and anti-manipulation techniques. You just need to be shameless about how others are making you feel. If you're open, honest and humble, even when you feel unsure if you're justified in feeling the way you do, any potential for manipulation gets flushed down the toilet. Don't even bother with counter-manipulation tactics. You'd probably lose that fight anyway. Just call it out, set boundaries even when you're uncertain, and trust that relentless honesty will protect you. Keeping it simple summary. Confrontations prevent conflict by giving people understanding of how to work with you effectively. Confrontation prevents manipulation by calling it out, neutralizing it, and protecting you from being moved. There are four main categories of manipulation. Intimidation, flattery or validation, invalidation, guilt tripping and gaslighting, and distraction. Deal with all of them by honestly voicing any uncomfortable feelings or thoughts you have when talking with someone. Key Actions Identify how you've been manipulated recently and note what confrontation would prevent it from happening again. If it's appropriate, have that confrontation today. Just call out how their behavior makes you feel. They don't necessarily have to change. Alrighty, thank you so much for listening. That are the, those are the final free chapters that I'll be giving away from the book, and next week the book drops live. You've still got a chance to get a pre-order in and get some of the bonuses that come with that, so check out the link below. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you all next time. Cheers. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity.